Well, this morning our scripture reading is almost the entire chapter of John 21. It's long and there's a lot happening. So we're going to try something a little bit different. Rather than uh, having it be read all at once, uh, we're going to break it into four sections and Bob or Michelle will read a section, then I'll share a few thoughts and we'll do it again. So we'll see how it goes. But first, let us pray as we prepare to hear the word of God. Good and gracious God, we give thanks for your spirit that saturates our world and saturates our lives. We pray that we will experience your spirit now so that we may hear your word for us today. Amen. Later, Jesus himself appeared again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This is how it happened. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They set out in a boat, but throughout the night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the di disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. Jesus called to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, No. He said, Cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they did. And there were so many fish that they couldn't haul in the net. So our story today takes place after the resurrection. The disciples have had two brief interactions with Jesus, so they know he's alive, but they don't know where he is. So what do the disciples do? They go fishing, or some of them do. Seven of the disciples go back to fishing, and who knows where the rest are at. It seems that the gang has split up, which leaves us wondering, why did half the disciples uh, well, go out to sea. There, there are sort of like two, two distinct possibilities. It could be that the disciples have gone back to their old life and just kind of given up on the whole Jesus thing. After all, they are, they're not out making disciples of the nations. They're not fishing for people. They're fishing for dinner. And, and we have a hint that this could be the case, that they're sort of running away from Jesus, because, uh, like the, because Jesus comes to them and asks, so how's the fishing going? It, it feels like Jesus is asking them, how's your old life treating you? And the disciples admit, it is not going well. They've not caught any fish. But all of a sudden, once they follow Jesus and move their nets, suddenly they catch fish again. So it could be that this scene right here is an allegory for about how the disciples have sort of abandoned Jesus but are now returning to Jesus. So it, that's one distinct possibility. Of course, it could be the opposite of that. It could be that the disciples are looking for Jesus. Uh, particularly in Mark's gospel, the disciples are told to go find Jesus in Galilee, which is where the disciples are fishing. In fact, 
they, Peter met Jesus on the lake where they're fishing. So it could be that they've actually gone back to the place where they hope Jesus will find them. And with that, it could be that Jesus is thrilled uh, to see that they're waiting for him. And, and that interaction is sort of like a wink and a smile as he tells them to move their nets just like he did years before when he met them in the first time, place. And honestly, we don't really know if the disciples are running from Jesus or to Jesus or perhaps a little bit of both. The disciples might not be entirely sure what they're doing. There might be a part of them that, that hopes that Jesus doesn't show so they can go back to normal life. And then another part of them that desperately wants Jesus to arrive. We, we just don't know. And I really like that ambiguity. Because sometimes it, it feels good to believe that faith is a, a dualistic journey where our actions are either right or wrong. And that feels good sometimes because if we can be sure what is right and what is wrong, we can know where we stand and our place in the world becomes a little bit more secure. But Jesus doesn't call us to security. Jesus calls us to faith. And the opening of this passage pulls us out of this dualistic thinking. We don't know why the disciples are fishing. Just like we don't know why Peter is not wearing pants. Because Peter's not wearing pants, and we should get to that. So how's that for setting up the next scripture, Michelle? <laughs> then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he wrapped his coat around himself, for he was naked, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't far from shore, only about a hundred yards. Yeah, so there's really only one thing to talk about here. <laughs> Peter's out with his friends fishing naked. What's up with that? Well, um... To take a step back, the, the Gospel of John is, is full of symbolism, more so than any other Gospel. Occasionally, John will rearrange the order of events or add kind of a creative detail to make a theological point. And I suspect that's what's going on here. Because before Peter approaches Jesus, he puts on his clothes. And this, this feels like a callback to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, they, they sin, and immediately afterwards, they feel, they're filled with shame. They realize that they're naked. They feel vulnerable, so they end up making clothes for themselves. And, and it feels like, like Peter's making the same move. Like, Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times. And he's yet to like, talk to Jesus about this. So I wonder if in this scene, Peter is full of shame and embarrassment. So, he, he, so the moment that he realizes that Jesus is on the shore, he puts clothes on, just like Adam and Eve, to cover their shame. And, and I like this symbol because of, what, because of where it's going and what it teaches us about the nature of God. 
In, in the story of Adam and Eve, they're, well, they're expelled from the garden. But that's not how this story goes. This will be a story of grace and reconciliation, a story where Peter is forgiven. And that's probably what we expect to happen next, right? Peter's racing towards the shore. We expect that Jesus is going to forgive Peter. But that's not what we get. Instead, we get breakfast. <laughs> when they landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. Peter, Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Yet the net hadn't torn, even with so many fish. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, yep, they have breakfast. This group of fishermen just caught this miraculous catch of fish. They realize as this happens that their teacher is waiting for them. Peter rushes to see Jesus, hoping to be forgiven and restored. But, but right at the climax of the story, Jesus puts everything else aside and feeds them breakfast. After a night of cold, long manual labor, Jesus tells them to warm their bodies by a fire on the beach and eat the food he's prepared them. And I love this. I, I love it because Christianity has not generally done a good job of teaching us to love our bodies. Many of us were taught that our flesh is weak, that our bodies are a threat to our spiritual purity. Or if not that, at least we were taught that our bodily needs are not as significant as our spiritual lives. I mean, there is that point where people come to Jesus asking for bread, and he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be go hungry. It, it seems often, both sometimes in the Gospels and certainly in the teachings of the church, like our faith is all that matters, and everything else is secondary. But, but other things do matter. Breakfast matters. Our bodies matter. The, the disciples' breakfast does not need to be in this story. I mean, who among us would miss it if it weren't there? But, but our, our bodies matter. The the seemingly insignificant details, those moments of our lives, they matter. In the gospel, these amazing, miraculous moments and, and ordinary moments, they're just integrated into the life of faith. The, the Bible isn't only miraculous stories. There are naps and meals and friendships and arguments and often the, the kind of miraculous moments bump into the most mundane. Like, Jesus heals someone, and then they break for lunch. Jesus is transfigured on the top of a mountain, 
Then he settles an argument. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and then he really needs a nap. Right? And this is the pattern of the Gospels, a tapestry of amazing and ordinary experiences that just weave throughout our days. And, and it seems to me that a big part of spiritual growth is learning to integrate these experiences. So even the most seemingly boring parts of our days are not absent of God's sacred presence. The, the stories bounce back and forth between, between miraculous and ordinary, revealing through it that all life is sacred. Or if I'm going to use more flowery, flowery language or less flowery language, this, this pattern lets us know that since Jesus took, just took care of his munchies, something profound is about to happen. The reconciliation that we've been waiting for will finally arrive. When they finished eating, Jesus said, asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time. Do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. This is the word of God. After breakfast, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? The Greek language has four different words for love. And Jesus uses the word agape, which describes selfless, unconditional love. So Jesus is asking Peter if he has selfless, unconditional love for him. Peter says, yeah, I love you. But Peter uses one of the other Greek words in his response. Phila. Phila is love between equals. It's brotherly love. It's genuine affection. So, Jesus, so Peter's telling Jesus, yeah, I love you like a brother. That, that doesn't cut it. So again, Jesus asks, do you love me unconditionally? And again, Jesus, or Peter replies, yes, I love you like a brother. But again, it feels like this doesn't cut it. It, it feels like Jesus is waiting for Peter to catch on. Jesus is asking for unconditional love, so Peter needs to figure it out and change his language. 
But that's not what happens. A third time, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? But this time, Jesus changes his question to match Peter's language. Jesus asks, do you love me like a brother? Jesus accepts where Peter's at. He sees Peter's brotherly love and he embraces that love. Jesus is is willing to love Peter in the way he wants to be loved, in the way we all want to be loved. In in traditional Christian theology, uh, agape is the highest form of love because it's the way God loves us unconditionally. Uh, Agape is the kind of love that we want to be able to give, but I don't think it's the kind of love we want to receive. You know, uh, I think it was last week, uh, Emily and I were eating dinner, and and she, she told me, I love you so much that I don't even get annoyed at the noises you make when you eat. Is is that supposed to make me feel better that that you love me despite my being a mouth breather? I I don't know. I mean, it's it's a good thing that I'm lying and Emily didn't say that. Because no one wants charity. No one wants to be loved out of duty or obligation. We want to be liked. We want someone to see us as an equal and think, that's the person I choose to be around. And this is what Jesus offers Peter. He defines their love in terms that Peter needs, terms we all need. Jesus tells Peter, I love you and I really like you. It's the same message actually that that Jesus receives at his baptism. I love you, and I really like you. Then Jesus goes one step further. He offers Peter a job. This is a sign of full restoration. He says, feed my sheep, take care of the people I love. Jesus is telling his friend, you matter to me, Your failure isn't the end, and I still need you. I I remember years ago, uh, a colleague, I met a colleague who I respected a lot. And so I started to call her for advice on, like, how to run a church. And then one day, she called and asked for my advice. And it felt amazing, because I knew she trusted me. She saw me as an equal. There was no charity. She wanted my help. And that's the love that Jesus offers Peter, the trust and the respect of a friend. And and all of this stuff, the, the mixed emotions and the confusion at the beginning, the running to and running from Jesus, the, the miracle of abundant fish, the shame, the breakfast, the reconciliation of friends. Like, all of this is the gospel. Like, this is the life of faith. This is what post-Easter life looks like. I mean, not necessarily in that order, and probably with less naked fishing. But, but it's, it's a it's a mix of very human moments 
human emotions and human desires interspersed with, with the divine presence breaking into our lives. There, there isn't always clarity. We can't always parse out what is what, and that's fine. That, that's the life of faith. Some days we, we aren't sure where we're going. Some days we, we probably feel like Peter, scrambling to cover our real self for fear that we're going to be exposed. But some days we're like the other disciples, just amazed at the fish. Some days we are hungry for reconciliation, and some days we're just hungry. The, the life of faith isn't just one thing. It's not something that happens in one corner of our lives where while real life happens the rest of the time. God is in it all. Our whole lives are alive with resurrection. That's, that's why Jesus gave us a meal as our central symbol of the Christian faith. Communion is our most sacred moment, and it's also just a snack. The ordinary and the miraculous come together, and there we find Jesus in every nook and cranny of this sacred world. So let's take a moment and prepare our hearts and minds to meet Jesus at the table. Amen.